Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast, and we are so glad you're here. Our church meets at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person, or you can catch our gatherings after the fact on our YouTube channel. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. break, my family and I, we take a little trip to the beach. My oldest son, it always happens on his birthday, and my youngest is like, why do we always take a trip to the beach for Isaac's birthday? Well, I, we don't. We're just, just the way it works out. He's never quite satisfied with that answer, though. This past year, uh, my dad had both my boys, and they were at the pool, sitting by the pool, lounging around, and <clears throat> There was this kid came up to my dad, and his, his dad was kind of in tow with him. He came up, and he looked at my dad, and he, he looked at him for a minute, and he looked back at his dad, and his dad was like, well, ask him. And the little boy's like, no, you ask him. So the little boy goes, are you Santa? Now, if I'd have been that, I'd probably leaned in a little bit deeper than my dad did to that. My dad was like, well, I've played that role a time or two. There's this book I'm reading right now called The Art of Possibility. And it's written by these uh, co-authors, a husband and wife team, and one of them is a therapist, and the other one is a musical guy. He, he teaches, he conducts, he's a composer. And the premise of the book is we have stumbling blocks in our life. We have limitations in our lives that are there because of assumptions that we carry to the table. Because assumptions that we carry with us in life... So what does that mean? Well, that means a five-year-old kid can look at my dad and think, that might be Santa. While his dad can look at my dad and say, there's no way that's Santa. And what's the difference? You see, the difference is time and experiences, right? Neuroscientists say it this way. They say, our brain, in order for us to understand life, our brain receives feedback from our senses, it processes that, and then it creates frameworks by which we look at life. It it creates frameworks or maps that we use to view the world. And as we grow and as we experience new things, we get more and more framework built into our lives and built into our mind. And so that's how we understand the world that we see. And if something doesn't fall into that, if something doesn't fall into that map, or if something doesn't fall into that, that framework that we have, we easily do what? We easily say, there's no way that can be real. There's no way that can be something that is actual or true, and so it doesn't really exist or it isn't really that. And so that's the reason a child can look at my dad, can see my dad has a big belly and he has a white beard, and be like, hey, that could possibly be Santa. On the other side, and I'm not going to be a spoiler, right? You know what our response is to that. Or what we think in our minds when we see that. And so the way we look at our world, and this is something they say in the book over and over, which took a little getting used to, is that everything is invented. Our framework is invented. How we see the world is invented. And we become comfortable with the frameworks that we have, the maps that we have to view the world. We become comfortable with that, and we can't really ever get outside of it. And we let the things that we think hinder us from what we really See, 
There's a story they tell in the book about a, a guy going up. I think it's Van Gogh. Was Van Gogh the one who drew the really weird portraits of people? I may be the wrong one. But he, anyway, this guy came up to an artist, one of the artists that used to paint really abstract images of, of the world. And they were like, he was like, why don't you paint things as they are? And he says, what do you mean? He said, well, here's a picture of my wife. And he had a little picture of his wife and he gave it to him. And he said, well, that's, she's kind of flat, isn't she? And see, our perception, the way we see stuff, is always framed by how we see the world. And we can only recognize those things, we can only recognize those maps that we have, or we can only recognize things that we have maps for, right? We only can recognize things that we have a framework to see and understand. It's a bit of a vicious cycle because we then we dismiss everything else. And everything else isn't even worth us looking at. And so what, is our, what are our brains wired to see and create? Well, it boils down to survival. Our brains are, desi- are designed to see how do we keep safe? How do we determine who is a friend and who's an enemy? How do we get food and resources to survive? And how do we procreate or how do we multiply? And so our brain is kind of designed to create frameworks that fit into that. And so they keep saying it's all invented. And that's, while that's hard for me to, to cut track with, they're saying, if it's all invented, if the way you look at stuff, if the framework is there, why not see a different framework for life? Why not invent something else, another way to look at stuff, so then you can step outside of what is holding you back, you can step outside of the things that, are, that is hindering you from doing what you need to do, and see something that's going to create a better life for you, or create a better life for those around you. They use this puzzle as a kind of an indicator. Is anybody familiar with this puzzle, this nine-dot puzzle? If you are, don't ruin it for anybody else. Don't ruin it, all right? <laughs> so here's the task. You've got to connect all nine dots using straight lines. You can't run over a line more than once, and you can't lift your pencil off the paper. Now, I was sitting on the beach as I was reading this, and I was looking at it, and I stared at the page for five minutes. I was like... In my mind, I was going, okay, I go this way, I go down, I go this way, I go down, I go this way. Wait, that's five lines. I can do this, that's three lines, and I'm leaving two out. And so then I, and in, the, in the book, it says, don't turn the page until you've really given up. Right? And so then I turn the page, and I'm like, what are you doing to me? Because in my mind, or, and maybe yours too, right? My mind is telling me, you have to stay within the box. Like you can't go outside the box. And so then I see, oh wait, there's another way to do it. So you start at the top left, you go out, you come down, you go back up to that dot, then you come out and you've got them all connected with four lines, four straight lines. You never lift your pen off the page. And my mind told me, as I looked at it, that I have to stay with inside the box. And so they say in, in the book, they say the frame in your the frames, the way we frame stuff, the maps that we have define our world, but not only they define it, they confine our world. So we can't see beyond what we think is there to the possibilities that are out there for us to see. Now I know what you're thinking, Chris. I'm thinking, well, this is all very nice. Because I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, well, let's get some pixie dust and wands. Let's just create whatever reality we want to create. And it'll all be great. So they had a response for that too. So they say, we don't mean that you can just make anything up and it magically appear. 
What we mean is, why don't you take the framework that you're working out of and shift it to something better? Not just for funsies, but so that better outcomes can happen in your life. The goal is to think differently so that we see situations differently and we see things differently. Much of what hinders us in this life is our own mind. That's not self-help babble. That's reality. Much of what hinders us in this life is we don't think we can do something. And guess what? If you don't think you can do something, you're right. Because that is the box you're living in. That is where if you decide to live your existence and have your existence is where you think you are. And sometimes our mind becomes a prison, right? It confines us. And it prevents us from seeing anything else and hearing anything else and assuming anything else and seeing anything else. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus in the book of Luke and Luke 8 and where we're at today? I'm glad you asked. We're going to talk about three stories today. We get it part of one and we get full part of two other stories in the, in the eighth chapter of Luke. And it's going to be speaking to us as I look through it this week and I'm reading, doing a lot of reading, and God works in mysterious ways, right? He works through what's going on all around us and what we're doing to pull us where we are. And, and so we're going to see Jesus being seen and not seen. And we're going to see Jesus seeing somebody who other people wouldn't see. And, and it's all about what's going on in our minds and how the world is has impacted us and our experiences have impacted us to where we can't see what is really there in front of us. And so we start in Luke 8, verse 26. And these stories are familiar to us. And we only get the first snippet. What was, it, what was given to me this week to preach from? We only get the first snippet of it. And so Jesus, after coming off the lake, he gets off. And as soon as he gets off the boat with these people, all of a sudden this guy runs up to him. who is His name is Legion because he's filled with all these demons, right? He's met by this demon-possessed man called Legion. And the first thing the demon says, well, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And not only say, what are you doing here? But what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? You see, the demons, the ones that you wouldn't expect to know who he is, knew immediately who Jesus was and knew immediately what Jesus was about. And so as soon as they saw him, they saw him. And they identified him for everybody around to see. Language is important. Seeing people is important. Names are important. And some of the magnitude of this is lost on us, right? Because I don't go around saying, Hi, I'm Josh, son of John Whitson, when I introduce myself. Charles, I'm Josh, son of John Whitson. Charles like, and? Unless I'm at a family reunion, right? And I've got to go back several generations before they know who I am. Jesus did not do this to announce himself, did he? Because if you turn over to Luke 22 and you read the end of Luke 22, what happens when he says, yeah, I'm Jesus, the Son of God? They hang him on a cross in Luke 22. Nobody else was saying this. And there are a lot of people traveling and seeing Jesus do some pretty spectacular things. If you look in Matthew chapter 8, which is kind of a parallel to this one, Jesus comes off the water after he did what in the water? What just happened in the water? Does anybody know? There had been a storm and Jesus was sitting down sleeping. And they're like, are you going to let us die while you take a nap? And Jesus is like, oh, just be quiet. And the storm goes, shh. So these people have seen a lot of really neat stuff already. And I, I, neat, I don't really mean that to be disrespectful. They'd seen some pretty intense stuff from Jesus already. 
But none of them are saying, this is Jesus, Son of the Most High God, because they were scared of what? <laughs> they were scared of being hung on a cross too. The framework in which they viewed life, dude, they could not say certain things without getting in a whole lot of trouble. And now these demons, they probably had insider info on who Jesus was. But again, there were hordes of people with Jesus that had watched miracles and seen all this stuff, and they weren't saying it out loud. So the first scene today is Jesus being seen and being named by the one person that shouldn't have had to have done that. And those who were with him that had seen all the spectacular things, they weren't saying anything. And so then you fast forward to the end of the chapter, starting in verse 40, where we're going to spend the rest of the time, 40 down through 56, and we get two stories here that are kind of run together. So Jesus gets back to the city, and he's greeted by this huge crowd of people, and they're all proclaiming, Jesus, Son of God! No, they're not, are they? My guess is all these people were coming along because they heard Jesus come, and they were trying to see what he was going to do next. They weren't necessarily there. It's like the people following him for food. Like, yeah, we're hungry. Can you give us something to eat? But immediately Jairus comes up to him. And Jairus is a big, important man in the city. He comes up and he says, look, my 12-year-old daughter is dying. Can you come and save her? Please come and heal her. Jairus hoped, right, that there was something special about Jesus or he would never have gone to Jesus like that. But he still didn't proclaim out loud, this is Jesus, Son of God, come and heal my daughter. And nothing to indicate Jesus interacted with him other than say Jesus headed out going that way. And this is a story that, again, that we're, we're pretty well familiar with. As Jesus walking through a crowd, and we're talking about a lot of people, right? They're probably jostling through to get there. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops and he says, Who touched me? Peter looks around and he says, who touched you? I, I, come on, Peter. I, I, come on, Jesus. Everybody touched you. We're in a crowd of people that's huge. Everybody touched you. Now, I'm not a big crowd guy. You ask my wife, I'm not like, I, don't, give me don't give me Titans tickets unless it's in a box. Don't give me Preds tickets unless it's in a box. Like, I don't want to, it's not that I am, think I'm better. I just don't like big crowds. Now, last Saturday night when Tennessee beat Alabama, go Vols, I would have loved to have been there for that. Because it would have been a re and that's probably once in a <laughs> decade experience, right? How long it have been? More than a decade since they won. Beat them. But anyway, I digress. It would have been really neat to be there, to experience that. But it was just as nice to sit at home on my couch and watch it. So I get Peter's response here. Peter's response is like, Jesus, are you serious? Who touched you? Everybody touched you. I don't think this is some carnival trick on Jesus' part. Jesus, I think Jesus knew exactly who touched him. And he could have let it go. He could have just let her had her healing and let her go on with her life. But there was more needed in that woman's life than just physical healing. Her issue, an issue of blood, whatever you want to read in the text there, her, her ailment in life had separated her from society. Like she was unclean. They could not touch her and go to the temple. They could not touch her and be part of life. And so it says for 12 years she had spent all of her money. She had been outcast for 12 years because she had this issue that could not be fixed and could not go away. And so for 12 years she desired not to be seen and she had not been seen for 12 years. And so Jesus knew this about her, but he also knew that she needed more than just to be physically healed. She needed to be seen. 
And he knew that everybody gathered in that crowd knew who this woman was, and they needed, they needed their framework adjusted as well. They needed their map for life adjusted as well. And so he says, in verse 48 there, he says, Daughter, you are healed. Again, language and naming are very important. Not only did he acknowledge her, not only did he renew her life, give her her life back, he said, you are now part of the family. Daughter, you are healed. And so... The scenes we get so far is Jesus has been seen and been, and been seen for who he is and been named by demons. And then the next story we get, we get Jesus being seeing someone and healing someone and naming them. And so we hope we're building to some crescendo, some great thing that's going to happen at the end where Jesus is going to be lauded and all great things are going to happen. But as we leave this scene and we head to the next scene, people come up to Jairus and say, look, your daughter's gone. Don't bother Jesus. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. And she will be healed. And so we get to this, we get to the house and there's this this climax of all this energy and all this stuff hanging on. And they get there and and in the back of my mind as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, are they going to say, and we've read it all, right? But like, you wonder, are they going to acknowledge that this is Jesus, the Son of God? And so we get there and they're all wailing and he says, stop it, just stop. She's just asleep. She's not dead. And they go, praise God, Jesus is here, the Son of God, and He's going to heal us. No, they laugh at Jesus. You see, the demon saw and knew who Jesus was, right? The woman who suffered for 12 years saw and knew who Jesus was. Now, you could argue in that part of the story that she had nothing to lose, so she just went for it. Or... We could try and understand that she had impossible odds stacked against her, and the only way that her life was going to get better is she believed something different than what she'd been told her whole life. And that that was Jesus, the Son of God, and that He could change her life. And so she reframed her life for the best possible outcome that she could have. And Jairus had some idea. Again, you could argue that he had nothing to lose. And so since he had nothing to lose, he decided to reframe his life in such a way that allowed for the best outcome. And so Jesus went in and said, get up. And what happened? She got up. But the people at the house refused to acknowledge, refused to say that this is Jesus, the Son of God. The son of the most high God. A couple weeks ago, whenever Jeff was here from Woodmont, it kind of kicked off this series for us. And he talked about seeing Jesus and understanding how Jesus sees us. And we find ourselves, I believe, again, back in the same place, being invited, being invited to see who Jesus really is, and at the same time trying to grasp how Jesus sees us. And I may be alone in this. I don't know about you, so I'm not going to speak from your experience. I'm going to speak from mine. There's sometimes I have a hard time grasping that Jesus loves me. Because of who I am. 
and because of who He is. But you see, the reality is that Jesus loves us in spite of who we are and because of who He is. You see, that's the beautiful part of it. You see, when they laughed at Jesus, Jesus could have said, okay, if that's the way you want it, that's the way you can have it. I'll go somewhere else where they want me. But you see, that's not who Jesus is. And we have to accept the way that Jesus sees us. And sometimes that's the hard part, is accepting the way that Jesus sees us. And that He loves us anyway. You see, do you believe that? Because it's easy to say those things, but sometimes our framework in life is written in such a way, the maps we have that we view life, that we can't process to the point to where we truly believe, even if we say it, we still truly don't believe that God loves us in spite of ourselves, in spite of the fact that we keep falling, in spite of the fact that we keep doing bad things, that God loves us anyway, that Jesus loves us anyway. And for me, that's the reason why the table is such an important part of our week. Why the table is so important that it is a tangible weekly reminder that God sees me and that God loves me. You see, God sees you. Laura, God sees you and God loves you. Campbell, God sees you and God loves you. And that's why we come to the table. But you see, it's not just you and I and those of us that are gathered in this room that God sees and God loves. God sees His whole creation. And before, well before us, long before us, God decided that He wanted to reconcile His creation back to Himself. And so He sees a lot more than just us. He sees those irrational preachers out there who say bad things and do bad things. He sees those convicts on death row. He sees those people that we don't see because we don't think they're worthy of our time, attention. And you see, that's the amazing thing, right? He sees us not because of us, but He sees us in spite of us. And that reality takes our world and He turns it upside down. You see, that reality takes our world and it turns us, it, it really, if we'll let it, the reality of God's love for us and the reality of God seeing us will destroy the frameworks that we have in our life that keep us from being who God has called us to be. It causes us to look at our reality and say, what is there here that we're not seeing? Or better yet, who is there here that we are not seeing? It makes us accept the fact, and again, this is the hard one, right? It makes us accept the fact that Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. That God is mighty to save. That Jesus is mighty and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it makes us accept that everyone, everyone needs compassion. That everyone needs the kindness of a Savior that we would not have anything without. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Let mercy.